I'd like to flag that the quality of this recording is less perfect than we would normally like to broadcast due to a weaker internet connection. But the content was so great I simply had to include it in the season. You're listening to Unpaused, a podcast for women who want to stage a career comeback or mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. I'm your host, Judy Stewart, and if you want to reclaim your career but don't know how, then this is the podcast for you. Let's meet our guest for today. Tim Walker is the Chief Executive and Artistic Director of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. In that role, he's advised hundreds of musical soloists, orchestral players, conductors and composers, as well as professionals from boards and management in the performing arts generally, on how to put their best foot forward in building their careers. He's one of the most well-connected and best informed in that industry in the world today. As it happens, Tim forged his career and cemented his professional reputation in Australia, and I met him while he was CEO of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, a company which, over the 10 years of his leadership in the 1990s, he put on the map. Since then, he's risen to the very top of his profession globally, guiding one of the top orchestras of the world as its CEO, and unusually its artistic director, which means he works with the resident and guest conductors on programming what the orchestra will play, with whom and where. In that sense, he's at the epicentre of identifying and nurturing talent and developing good people and good ideas into strong artistic products that will sell. In this interview, he describes exactly how he approaches that process. The patchwork of Tim's career is living proof that a timely career sabbatical can be regenerative, He openly admits to burnout and the benefit of giving time to allowing the seed of an idea to do something different, to germinate. In his view, it's the doing that's important to career progress, not the sitting and waiting for success to come to you. Tim's been a huge influence on my own career restart, so let's begin with that. Tim, perhaps I should let you describe how we became friends, if you can remember. And if you can't remember, I'll remind you. (laughs) We became involved because I was general manager of the Australian Chamber Orchestra and uh, we had expanded our subscription season to Brisbane and we were looking to recruit uh, new board members. And uh, we met you at one of our fundraising events and you expressed an interest in in being involved and uh, very quickly uh, we we moved that forward and and then well other things happened out of that I think uh, for you in the not-for-profit art sector certainly because after I left the ACO, Australian Chamber Orchestra, I was doing a a small consultancy for the Australian Festival of Chamber Music. They needed a new chairman of the board, they needed a new general manager, so I turned to you and I turned to uh, Jane Hickey, or Malcolmson, as she is now, who uh, had been my marketing director at the ACO. So that sort of moved you into the, the art sector, and then of course you went on to the board of the Australia Council's Performing Arts and Opera Australia. I think to look back on it, Tim, I mean, A, I learned a lot from you about how you operated at the ACO 
and also about fundraising, your famous line being, don't ask, don't get, <laughs> forever emblazoned in my mind. But also I did go to the odd meeting with you and I used to watch you in action and, you know, you had a very light touch, I think, which I, I'd like to think I tried to emulate. But also we had a lot in common. We knew some people in common and we liked doing the same sort of things and including jam making, as it turns out. <laughs> I'm trying to work jam into every podcast, it being my other favourite subject. <laughs> You're quite a good jam maker, Tim, if not a follower of recipes to the letter. No. So I'm interested in you describing your career. It's been an interesting journey because you've had a few stops and starts. Well, the first thing is that I ended up in arts management by default because when I was at university, I was studying foreign policy and diplomacy as part of an arts degree, majoring in political science with a view to working in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And actually, when I finished my honours year, the department wasn't recruiting and didn't recruit for quite a few years, I think, because there's a period when embassies around the world were being closed. And I decided then to do another year at University of Diploma of Education and, and teach for a few years. Uh, because I did actually have an education department scholarship. And if I didn't teach, then I would have had to have repaid it. So I ended up teaching. And that worked out very well because I was sent to a matriculation college in Devonport. And after a short period of time, I became the head of music there because of the departure of the music teacher. And from there, I, I went to the Canberra School of Music, which is part of the Australian National University as concert manager. And that was quite a good move because the director of the Canberra School of Music at the time, John Winter, a Danishman, had been a previous uh, general manager of Opera Australia. So I thought that if I wanted to progress in arts management, that's probably a good place to be. And that was a very interesting job. I did for about five years. And then I was approached by the Australian Chamber Orchestra to joined them in Sydney as, as sort of marketing and development manager, which I did in 1987, then two years later became general manager and stayed another 10 years. I mean, it's fair to say that yeah. when you started at the ACO, it was not the company that it was when you left the ACO. I mean, it was a part-time orchestra, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's true. I, yeah, I was there, it was a part-time orchestra when I started and Certainly, I had the ambition to make it a full-time orchestra. When I started, we had two subscription programs, series in Sydney, Opera House, and one in Canberra. And we extended that to 10 or 11 cities. So all the major cities of Australia, plus some regional ones like um, Wollongong and Newcastle and so on. And so I think by the time I left, there, we were doing about 84 subscription concerts and eight national tours each year and so on. And one year did up to six overseas tours, so really built the international market. Yeah, it was a really huge undertaking, wasn't it? And you became very closely identified with the ACO, yeah. as closely identified as its artistic director, at least amongst the people in the inner circle. Yeah. And so it was really the big critical job of that early part of your career, yeah. wasn't it? Yes. You know, yes, it yes, made well, you and, and you made it, really. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's fair. I think 
The time I decided to leave was the day we moved into our new premises at Circular Quay. And uh, it just felt by then that I'd completed a body of work, including getting a, a proper home for the orchestra, and that it was ready to move on. And also it was partly a reflection that I just had to get off the treadmill. You just cannot keep up the, the momentum of running uh, an organisation like that uh, forever. You just need a break from it. And the break uh, gave me time to do some consultancies. I ended up doing five consultancies with different arts organisations. And it also gave me the time to plan the World Orchestra's idea of having an international orchestra season in Sydney and Melbourne, which we launched in 2002. World Orchestras was a really big idea, wasn't it? Yeah. That you plotted out, you were having time off, and you must have sat there and thought, look, I want to do something big and important. Well, I'd, I'd been thinking about it for a year before I actually finished at the ACO, so the idea had been germinating. I thought that we were missing out by not having what the major cities in the world have, and that's international orchestras visiting on a regular basis, and that there must be a way of, of making that happen. And... In fact, in the first year we did it, it was it was very successful. It was trying to sustain it that I could see would be difficult. And uh, the other thing I realised was after a break from the ACO, I actually felt more comfortable being right in a performing arts environment, leading a company, rather than being like a grocer, buying in orchestras and putting them on and then they go. And when the headhunter approached me about the London Philharmonic Orchestra, although I had no intention really of leaving Australia and coming to London, it did make me suddenly realise that it's quite isolating being a presenter. You do a lot of hard work, the orchestra comes, gives its concerts and then goes. And what I really missed was the sense of camaraderie, team working environment, being much closer to the artistic process and so on. And I think I'd had enough years out of the ACO so that by the time I came to the LPO, I felt I was refreshed and I could do that again. So I actually needed time out of the market and I needed to initiate something that was all my work because in as much as I had developed the ACO from part-time to full-time and grown the amount of work and grown the, the budget, I felt I wanted to do something that was completely my own work and start something from scratch. Having established world orchestras, which in a sense I should have continued doing, it actually uh, was a strength that I then had in getting the job in London. The orchestra was really here looking for somebody who was uh, entrepreneurial and amongst other things, and and the establishment of world orchestras sort of indicated that I was entrepreneurial, that I could plan everything in a company to present orchestras. It demonstrated artistic judgment and some which were important qualities. They were looking for the job in Britain. I mean, it's important to say that there are, I think, 14 symphony orchestras in Britain and only one of them has the role of chief executive and artistic director. Uh, it's it's harder to find people who can do both parts of the job. And actually what I'd done at the ACO and then with World Orchestras demonstrated that I could do both of those. So going 
out of the market, if you like, as I did leave the ACO, picking up some consultancies and then starting my own project um, helped me to get the next job. I'm not saying it mightn't have happened anyway, but I think that in hindsight it proved to be beneficial. And certainly I can't overlook the fact that I was exhausted. I just needed to do something different for a while, clear my head, mm. uh, get that 12 years out of the way and refresh myself. And did you ever have a moment of panic? Did you ever think when you were not working and before World Orchestra's really got going, did you ever think, what have I done? I've left this. Because the ACO was a very compelling proposition. I mean, you'd really taken it to a level where it was self-sustaining and it was very artistically successful. It had been acknowledged when it had travelled internationally as being of the standard of its peers. Did you ever just to walk away from that? But I've walked away from a very compelling job on the basis that I just had absolutely nothing more to give. Well, I think it, you inevitably do. But I also think that you can stay too long and there needs to be a judgment about whether you go when everything is going well or whether you go when things are maybe not going so well or when you go because actually somebody has said it's time for you to go. So I think in my case I wanted to go at a time of my choosing when things were going well, basically. So I was leaving the company in a good place. I've been here 15 years, so it's already three years longer than I was at the ACO. And initially I was on five-year contract, which after the first five years was changed to an annual contract. So I became a full-time employee and um, on, on a six-month notice period. So the board or I can could end that relationship at any time. But every five years, I've taken a critical look at whether or not I should move on. And at each five-year period, there has been something that I would have been attracted to move on to. So I've had to look closely to say, well, do I do another big job or do I stay in the one that I'm in? Because these are big jobs. They're, they are big in the sense that the responsibility is sort of 24-7 and you work at nights and weekends as well as during the day. So it's yeah. a big time commitment. And they can be very wearing. And again, am I happy to keep working at the pace that I'm working or do I need another break and then think about something else? So I think that those personal considerations are quite strong. But I also do have a sense of obligation to the company that's employed me in the sense that I wouldn't want to leave at a bad time. So if there's a big project, as there is now with the London Philharmonic, I wouldn't want to leave until I bedded that down. So I think the loyalty should go both ways. And I think that when you choose to go, you should feel that, you know, the company is strong enough or, ha or has some sort of succession plan in place that will ensure its survival. Having said that, I do reiterate it's up to the governing body board to determine who they want next and what sort of direction they might want to take. Because when the CEO leaves, has been in place for quite a long time, it is an opportunity to re mm, refocus, uh, I would say, mm. you know, maybe different sorts of priorities. you spend a lot of time meeting with artists and nurturing artists and the like what sort of advice do you give them 
about staying current and staying relevant and trying to become more visible, etc.? Yeah. Well, sometimes, I mean, every case is different, but sometimes with a young artist who, who feels that, you know, they should have all the major orchestras and all the major concert halls and they're not achieving that, I would suggest going right back to basics and donating themselves to give performances with small regional orchestras, maybe pro um, orchestras in regional venues and just start all over again, developing the repertoire, building up their knowledge of the repertoire, their experience in playing and just going step by step because not everybody's career sort of starts immediately at a high. With a lot of people, they need to put in the hard yards and sometimes expectations uh, are perhaps greater than, than reality. That can happen sometimes. I think that a lot of artists are quite resourceful and they do end up in teaching situations or seeking assistant conductor opportunities in small opera houses in Germany, for example, which, again, are the stepping stones you need to move forward. Quite a lot of artists get their breaks simply because they've been in an assisting or supporting role. The principal is ill, they take over, they stand by, they take over, and suddenly they are, they are discovered. And there are ways and means of artists building a career it generally means going back yeah. quite a few and being prepared to say, I need to do whatever I can here and there, because it's actually the doing that leads to the breaks. The sitting at home and doing nothing isn't going to give the breaks. Then if you're sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring because the LPO wants to book you to the Royal Festival, it's not going to happen. But you are doing things and you can be noticed and you can be proactive. I'm quite impressed by a number of artists who are proactive in the sense that they will write with good ideas, not artists who will just constantly write to you saying, come and have a look at this, come and have a look at this. In the end, you just uh, sort of block them because you, you don't want to hear anymore. But there are artists, generally composers, who will write and say, look, I've been thinking about this. What can you advise? Could we meet to discuss? And people who have an idea that resonates then I, I'm happy to meet and discuss and help and so on. But this blanket approach of just saying, this is what I've done, why don't you book me, doesn't tend to work. And when you say they come to you with an idea, is it a fairly fully formed idea? Like they've spent quite a lot of time on it? Yes, it's generally a well-thought-out idea and there's something different about it. And so you can see, yes, this is worth having a talk talk about. And, and, and in the discussion, you might mould it and push them to move it in, in a slightly different direction. But generally, somebody who is proactive and has an idea is going to win your attention more than somebody who just writes saying, this is what I've done, would you consider me? The other thing, of course, in the profession is that we have agents and we deal with agents and the best artists all have agents. There are some good artists who don't get agents, but generally having an agent is the stepping stone to having a successful career. And it's like uh, the imprimatur of having somebody represent you. So artists who don't have agents are going to find it much more difficult. Sometimes I actually help artists who don't have agents to get an agent because I, I believe in them and it's a matter of selling that belief to the agent to take them on. It's quite a difficult area and 
it's not an easy one for people with talent to find their way through, to be honest. For those at the top of the pile, yes, it's fairly straightforward. But for a lot of others, they have to be very strategic in the way they go about it. What provides brain fuel, inspiration, or who are your role models, Tim? Generally, the mentors I've had, people like John Winter, Kent Tribe, used to be chair of the ACO Music and Viva, John Painter, who was for a while head of the uh, Campus School of Music in the Sydney Conservatorium, and who was one of the founders of the ACO, actually. I was probably interested in the ideas of people like Sir John Tooley, who used to run the Royal Opera House, have and is associated with the LPO. Um, and there were definitely people that I would talk to and get advice from. But I think in many respects you see how other people do similar jobs and you find your own way. And the longer I do it, the more I think that the way you find is the way that is determined by your family background, your education, your upbringing, your personality, your character. In other words, it's all of those formative things, your your early education, all of those formative things that make you suitable or unsuitable for the the job you're doing. There are basic sets of of skills that you have to have across legal, uh, financial, human resources, things and so on. But ultimately, it's the character and personality that determines the style in which you do things. And I think that was actually one thing that Ken Drive was very helpful with. He always said it's not necessarily about what you have to say, it's the way you say it. So in order to get people to support what you want to do and to move everything forward in a structured way so that all of your team is working well together, orchestra is working well, it's the way you sell the message or sell the idea or relate to people, deal with people. I think it's it's the manner that is so important. And that, of course, is an inherited thing from all of those formative parts of your life. They're not necessarily acquired later in life. It's as though all of that is the bedrock of your professional potential and on top of that, yes, you get a university degree, you get some postgraduate diplomas, you get work experience, you get knowledge in all in key areas of finance, uh, law and so on that you need to do the job. But all of those skills sit on this much more important bedrock of attitude, respect for other people, the real notion of integrity in what you do and the way you deal with people. There's something there that's broad and solid below all of those learned skills. Well, that's quite encouraging to hear you say that because I suppose the reflecting on those fundamentals, each person reflecting on those fundamentals, providing their bedrock is a strong one, it should be encouraging to them if they are in the career doldrums to realise that actually the bedrock is pretty sound, that a little bit of creative thinking or entrepreneurial thinking can dig them out of what seems like a point of inertia. 
in other words, you're acknowledging that the base of somebody, the essence of the person, their character, their personality, is intrinsically tied to their professional success. Now, the one last subject I just wanted to talk about was women at work and the changes that you might have seen in your very specific area of work with the increasing presence of women at work. Well, in the orchestra itself, we're pretty well 50-50 gender split and men and women all are the same in the orchestra. In the administration, we have slightly more women than men and generally at the top, I think, of... The 14 orchestras in Britain, only one of them is run by a woman. So it would be good to see more women in senior roles. However, having said that, the chairman of the London Philharmonic is a woman. The current chief executive of the South Bank Centre, where Royal Festival Hall is, is a woman. The chairman there is a woman. The head of music there is a woman. There are lots of women working in the arts. Traditionally, and I'm thinking right back through the last century, women came into the arts, if you like, the pin money. It was to be in a creative environment and actually the salary didn't matter. They they didn't need the money. And there are a lot of low-paid entry-level jobs in the arts, but there are also very good career prospects. And it is interesting that in the senior management team in most arts companies, there are a lot of women. What we haven't, what we're not seeing is enough women perhaps at CEO levels, but there's certainly the women in senior management to be able to do that. I mean, there is there are good examples in, in Australia in there because, you know, you have Mary Valentine at Sydney Symphony, you've got uh, a lady heading up Melbourne Symphony at the moment, um, a lady who I used to work with at Auckland Philharmonia and so on. So there are, are women in those positions and they do succeed. Tim, what about the female conductors? I, I'm not aware of where that sits. Well, there aren't as many as we would like. We would like there to be many more. The point is that those that are there, we need to encourage and we need to put on platforms uh, as role models to encourage more women to take up conducting. In the time I've been here, I think we've moved from about one female conductor in a concert season now to five, which is good. I'm very happy about but I, I would love there to be more women to choose from. I think it's happening and I think it will gather momentum. I think there are female members of the orchestra who would like to see more female conductors. I think that if you are open and you are doing things, then that's fine. I mean, if we still only had one female conductor in the season, I, I would be very unhappy. But the fact that we have, and we have gone out looking for these people, we established an American Friends of the LPO Conducting Fellowship. And I got the head of conducting, Alan Gilbert at Juilliard, to select the person. And he, he selected a lady called Karina Kanalakis. And she came and assisted our principal conductor. I saw her conduct the, uh, the Fessel Music School Orchestra. After that, we invited her to conduct in our season this year. And having another concert with her in two years, she's getting dates with the BBC Symphony, other respected American orchestras and so on. So you help to make things happen and then you reap the rewards of that. You can't sit and just do nothing. You have to be proactive. And in being proactive, you're helping people 
to get to that level where you can quite legitimately say, this is the best person I can get to do this program. I'm not there because he is male or she is female. I'm booking this conductor because that's the right conductor for this program. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unpaused. I'd love you to subscribe on iTunes or share the podcast with someone you think might like it. You can find the show notes or sign up for news on my website, unpaused.net, or see what we're up to on Instagram or my LinkedIn page. Bye for now.